0: Today's episode uh, focuses on a historical and contemporary topic that's in the news, but often neglected in other contexts, the role of state governments in making larger constitutional and political policies for the United States. What role have our states, now there are 50 of them, of course, what role have they played in the evolution of our constitutional democracy in the ways we vote? in the ways we spend our money as a society, in the ways we allocate health care, and various other policy issues. What role have state governments played? How does our structure of federalism uh, play states in particularly important roles? And, And how do we understand our current controversies over voting and other issues in light of this history? We're very fortunate today to be joined by, I think, clearly the foremost scholar of state constitutions and state policymaking in a national framework, Robinson Woodward-Burns. Robinson, thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Robinson is an assistant professor uh, in the Department of Political Science at Howard University. I, I think of him as a historian from a lot of his writing, but he, he's also in political science and we won't hold that against him. Uh, he, he researches and teaches uh, American constitutionalism, civil rights, federalism, DC politics and statehood. And maybe we'll have a chance to talk a little bit about that. We've done prior episodes on that, but maybe that'll come up now as well. Uh, slavery and abolition. So he covers all the good stuff and uh, he's got a new book that's just come out uh called hidden laws how state constitutions stabilize american politics i encourage everyone to go out and read that it will probably be assigned to my students uh, in the fall Uh, this book looks at state constitutional reform and how state constitutional reform has addressed national controversies over elections voting civil rights and um, Robinson has a a positive story to tell about how, at times, uh, state constitutional reforms have actually stabilized um, our democracy. He's published on pieces of this already, on abolitionism and constitutionalism in various uh, academic journals, including the Tulsa Law Review and the Journal of Politics. And he's published for a larger public audience, which is how I first came across Robinson's work, publishing in The Atlantic uh, and The Washington Post. Uh, And his piece in The Washington Post, from what I remember on on D.C. statehood, is particularly uh, relevant and, and worth reading on the various constitutional issues surrounding that. So uh, we've got the right person here to talk about the role of the states and how we understand our current controversies. Before we turn to Robinson, we have, of course, uh, Mr. Zachary Suri's scene-setting poem. What's the title of your poem
1: today, Zachary? When they gather in the hallowed halls. Let's hear about the hallowed halls. When they gather in the hallowed halls, you can scream, but it won't work. You can cry, but they will throw back a laugh. You can grimace, and they'll give you a smirk. When they walk among the paintings and the riff-raff, you can ask for water, but they'll hand you a Kleenex. You can ask for a tissue, but they'll pass you a glass of water. Tell them about the thieves, and they'll imprison the beatniks. When they gather, the shoemaker, the lawyer, and the squatter, you can ask for salvation, and they'll pass you a gun. You can ask for an education, but they'll give you salvation. You can ask for a wheelchair, but they'll tell you to run. When they gather in the hallowed halls in bureaucratic elation, you can ask for their loose change, and they'll hand you empty billfolds. You can ask for their best impression of a goose, and they'll read you scripture. You can ask for their dough, but they'll give you the rolls so charred they are black. You can ask them why they're there, why or if they even care, and they'll ask you in open indignation, who the hell are you? And point to a lesser yes-man to poke. (laughs)
0: I love the cynicism in this one, Zachary. What, what is your poem about?
1: Well, I went in a rather cynical direction. It's really about my uh, frustration with the fact that state government, particularly the state legislature here in Texas, is supposed to represent uh, the people in, in a way that the national government is unable to because it it represents so many people. But at the same time, state governments seem to be doing things that go in the exact opposite of the the people they represent and what's in their interests certainly that's the
0: experience many people have today. Uh, And and Robinson, uh, as we go back uh, a couple of centuries to start this story, um, were state governments more representative in another period? How should we understand the role they've played long before our current moment in our federalist structure?
2: That's an excellent question, Jeremy. If you look at the framing of the first state constitutions, you see debates not unlike our own today, there were those who favored the broad franchise and popular participation in government that uh, these debates are similar to ones we see now and then. There were those who favored a more restrictive franchise and those who favored uh, perhaps a, a more elitist form of government. In 1776, the Continental Congress instructed the new states to draft their own constitutions. And when we saw this happening, there were kind of two models. One emerged from Pennsylvania in 1776, which had an extraordinarily broad franchise and a unicameral legislature, a one-chambered state legislature, on the assumption that a single legislature would be better able to represent all of the people. Now, in response to this, we also saw, at the same time, a constitution drafted in Virginia, which was informed by some more patrician um, members of the Virginia gentry, also by John Adams, which was a much more complex system. It it provided for an upper house to represent the state's landed gentry. In South Carolina, William Henry Drayton uh, uh, sponsored a proposal to make South Carolina's upper house Uh, hereditary, much like the House of Lords in in Great Britain. And so uh, there was this early debate about how to design the legislature and also how wide to make the franchise, how uh, tough restrictions ought to be, that looks a lot like modern debates. Uh, And these debates informed the creation of the U.S. Constitution. That Pennsylvania Constitution I mentioned also had a clause. It was proposed in the Constitution. It never made it to ratification that said that people had a right to uh, live with enough property to essentially get by, this would have allowed for uh, something like land redistribution to, to the poor in Pennsylvania. And that clause never makes it, but it does catch the eye of people like. Uh, john adams who are worried that there's a spirit of democracy brewing in uh in philadelphia where they're drafting this constitution and ultimately it's backlash to this much more radical model that informs the framing of the federal constitution which of course has the upper house the senate which often sort of slows or stymies more progressive or populist change
0: and and early in the uh republic are the states these laboratories for policy experimentation that progressives will later call them in the early 20th century
2: yes the states have always had this role of serving as laboratories of democracy as justice lewis brandeis called it in the 1932 case um, before the supreme court but even in the very beginning of the republic you see the states experimenting with different forms of the franchise Different forms of legislative design, again, with these questions in mind of who ought to participate in government. Uh, In the the early Republic era, we also see the states essentially uh, experimenting with methods for electing or selecting presidential electors. And ultimately, by the 1820s, the states uniformly agree that the people ought to vote for a state slate of popular electors. And uh, as, as a result, we see states sort of homogenizing around that kind of platform after experimenting with other forms of selecting electors. Uh, it's worth mentioning because that uh, method is now coming under question.
0: It's a really important point you brought up and something I, I wish I knew more about. Uh, why in 1820 do they go what we go to what we now take for granted, which is the, the notion that the electors are apportioned based on how the people vote, not how the state legislature thinks the electors should be apportioned?
2: Right. So it's worth noting that the U.S. Constitution is very short. It's the shortest national constitution at only 7,800 words, including the amendments. And so the process for the Electoral College is actually uh, fairly underspecified. We know that the states select electors who then vote for president, but the Constitution doesn't specify how states select electors. And the reason was that at the federal convention, the framers wanted to essentially let the states do what they had long done as colonies, which was determine the process for elections. And so states under the Constitution set the time, place, and manner for elections including the manner of selecting electors. Uh, Now, for the first 20 or 30 years, states tried many different paths for selecting electors, including letting the state legislatures pick those electors. And the problem was that parties would often deadlock in the state legislature and refuse to send a slate of electors at all. And so in order to solve that, basically the uh, state legislatures bound their own hands by agreeing to uh, give a state of electors, uh, give the uh, state's Uh, electors to whoever won the most votes, the popular vote uh, in that state. And that sort of solved that problem of selection. Uh, Once one state did it and agreed to give all of their electors to the same candidate, uh, that state got outsized influence in the Electoral College and other states would scramble to uh, imitate. Pennsylvania was the first to do this, and so it spread from there
0: so is this the pattern for the 19th century that the constitution is fairly conservative uh and limiting in its democratic elements it's much more of a republican document obviously than a democracy document uh and is it is it uh, the pattern that the states are widening the nature of our democracy obviously still with bounded limits around race and gender but nonetheless is is that the pattern or is does it vary more than that
2: I'd say that the Constitution is small-c conservative in that it really doesn't specify or uh, advance uh, federal uh, voting rights. There is no positive affirmation of the right to vote in the Constitution, although some amendments like the uh, 15th, part of the 14th, as well as the, uh, the 23rd and the 26th and the 24th forbid certain forms of disenfranchisement and, of course, the 19th. Um, there is no affirmative protection of a right to vote uh, constitutionally in the federal constitution. All states constitutionally protect the right to vote, with the exception of Arizona that does it statutorily. And so if you want to look for these broader positive affirmations of rights, you'll find them in the state constitutions. And you'll also find more progressive forms of rights, like, say, rights to certain forms of welfare or labor protections, which are found under the state constitutions, rights to education or to a healthy or clean environment are found under some state constitutions, as well as very broad equal protection rights. Often, as uh, Justice William Brennan said in 1977, these state rights exceed the minimum or the federal floor for rights and include the sorts of rights that the very brief federal constitution was never updated to include.
1: How does the addition of states, uh, particularly during the period of westward expansion, uh, affect the the relationship between state governments and the federal government?
2: That's a great question. Uh, We see something like diffusion. So uh, as the country incorporates western territory, uh, we'll see early states pioneer new forms of constitution drafting, and other states will copy that. So in 1802, Ohio drafts a constitution, which becomes the model for many of the other states carved out of the uh, Northwest Territory, the old Northwest. Uh, and so you see, for example, the uh, anti-slavery clause uh, in Ohio's constitution uh, spread throughout the old Northwest and eventually become the model for um Southern constitutions re-entering the Union after the Civil War. It's this language from the Southern constitutions which later becomes the model for the 13th Amendment.
0: Is there a clear break, though, or difference or division, whatever uh, noun we want to use, uh, for differentiating the Southern states, the old Confederacy, from the rest of the country? Uh, Does regionalism still define the differences among state constitutions?
2: It absolutely does. Uh, If you look at the rates of constitutional replacement, when a state entirely replaces its constitution, they're much higher for the South. Uh, So Southern constitutions have gone through waves of rewriting. Uh, They did this occasionally in the Jacksonian era when new legislators would come in and draft much more populist constitutions that extended the vote to all white men, regardless of their levels of uh, property ownership or wealth. You saw this again during the Civil War when Confederate states framed their own constitutions. And then through Reconstruction, Southern states drafted constitutions repeatedly in ways that uh, entrenched rights that were often lacking at the federal level. In 1867 and 1868, Southern states at federal behest had a second wave of constitutional conventions which entrenched broad rights to um, uh, uh, education uh, and uh, labor protections. And these uh, also included uh, strong uh, protections against uh, discrimination and uh, protections for the right to vote. These constitutions were often written by black men who had formerly been enslaved and so were much more progressive uh, than the fairly limited federal amendments. Essentially, they elaborated or buttressed the federal amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments of, of the 1860s and of 1870. And so you see throughout Southern constitutionalism, again, with the rise of Jim Crow, a new wave of state constitutions, and then more constitutions in the 20th century. Uh, Southern constitutionalism has really been a a story of replacement, of wholesale replacement, much more so than, say, in places like Massachusetts, which has kept the same constitution since 1780.
0: And and are the Southern constitutions also defined by race uh, around those issues?
2: They are. Uh, There was a wave of Jim Crow constitutions. Mississippi wrote the first one in 1890. It was called the Mississippi Plan, which pioneered facially race-neutral clauses which could circumvent the prohibition on overt racial discrimination under the 14th and 15th Amendments, but that in practice disenfranchised black voters and also allowed other forms of racial segregation. Uh, By 1902, Virginia drafts the last Jim Crow Constitution, and these documents really survive until the 1960s, in, which, uh, in the period in which the Supreme Court forces the states to reapportion their legislatures. And we see the states simply re- rewriting a lot of state constitutions in this era and uh, starting to scrap many of their Jim Crow constitutions. Not all of them do. Alabama still has uh, its Jim Crow constitution of 1901, which clocks in at uh, three hundred and eighty-nine thousand words. It's the longest
0: constitution. Wow, wow! Uh, reaffirming the the point that shorter is better, right, Robinson?
2: <laughs> that's that's what they say. Certainly, the Alabama Constitution is not a model.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um. I'd love to to hear more about the constitutional rewriting in the 1960s and 70s. It's part of the history of the civil rights movement that we often don't pay enough attention to, right? We talk about the changes in federal law. Uh, What role do the changes in state laws play for the civil rights movement?
2: Yeah. So you see a few things happening, and one is that the federal government – is nudging the states to reapportion their legislatures but there's actually a much older and longer fight about things like the poll tax happening at the state level so i'll I'll talk about both of those if you look at the state legislatures in the south they overrepresent rural districts they look kind of like the way the u.s senate does now there's a heavy bias towards rural especially white conservative voters in these state legislatures in the 1960s and so Tennessee, for example, refuses to reapportion its legislature despite a state constitutional mandate to do so. And in Alabama, you see something similar. And so in a pair of cases, Baker v. Carr and Reynolds v. Sims between 1962 and 1964, the Supreme Court looks at these state-level protections or requirements for regular reapportionment and requires states to enforce them. And even outside the South, you do see some of this malapportionment going on. So, this is where you get the one person, one vote doctrine, the idea that state legislative districts should be apportioned roughly equally to population. And states have to reapportion. What happens is you get new legislative districts and new legislators who pass new sorts of bills and bring in uh, new sort of progressive goals in the late 1960s, as well as uh, we start to see the emergence of majority black districts or majority minority districts, uh, not just at the congressional level, but also at the state legislative level. So that's one thing. Uh, The second story that I want to mention is the story of poll tax repeal. Uh, And that actually happens a little bit earlier. Uh, Reapportionment, that fight's really a fight through the 1960s. But Uh, if you look at the repeal of the poll tax, the idea that you have to pay a tax before voting, it's actually the states that repeal the poll tax through the 1930s and 40s, especially as New Deal legislators see more and more white constituents in the South during the uh, Great Depression losing the ability to vote because they simply can't afford the poll tax. so poll tax repeal actually begins at the state level. Uh, It's in 1964, that uh, the federal constitution forbids it. Nineteen sixty-six. That the Supreme Court does it. But by that point, only four out of the uh, states, have, uh, four out of the fifty states, still have the poll tax. So it's through state constitutional and statutory reform that you actually get poll tax repeal during the New Deal era.
0: But nonetheless. Uh... After the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the role of the federal government uh, in providing, through the Justice Department, right, oversight for elections and particularly the process of preclearance, that's pretty important, right, for the protection of voting rights in many of these states. Is that is that correct?
2: Absolutely. Uh, you see sort of uh – Two things happening with the Voting Rights Act. There are some sections which uphold what the states have already done. Section 10, for example, forbidding the poll tax is sort of an affirmation of, of what the states have already done. And then there's Section 4b and 5, which are much more aggressive interventions against southern states. And that's the preclearance part that you were just mentioning.
0: And, and so does, how do you see uh, the Shelby decision? This is the, the decision of Shelby versus Holder in 2000 and. 13 if i'm not mistaken right written uh, the majority opinion for a 5-4 decision written by chief justice roberts which basically says as i understand it among other things that the states that under the voting rights act of 65 had been subjected to just justice department pre-clearance before changing any of their voting procedures or districts now no longer needed federal oversight it, it, is that a, a turning point
2: yeah that's that's remarkably important so Uh, what happens is there there are two provisions that the um, Justice Department, in helping draft uh, the um, 1965 Voting Rights Act, there are two provisions that the Justice Department um, helps put in. And one is Section 4B, which points out that um, parts of the country that had less than, uh, for example, 50% turnout in 1964 are subject to preclearance. And Section 5 says that under this preclearance formula, These uh, states can't change their election laws without authorization from the Department of Justice or from a federal court. And that was a pretty powerful intervention, uh, one that was essentially geared towards um, uh, preventing voting uh, restrictions at the state level. Uh, Now, ultimately, what happens is you get a suit uh, which uh, claims that from Shelby County, uh, Alabama, officials claiming that the preclearance formula and requirements are violations of the rights of the uh, their state to engage in time, place, and manner regulation of the vote, and also that these uh, formulas, which are based on the 1964, you know, on 1964 turnout figures, uh, are outdated. Uh, Congress had failed to update um, um, the, the provision, and so the claim was that uh, it no longer really held water. And so, in a pretty narrow and contentious five-four decision, the Supreme Court strikes it down. And this is not exactly the genesis of modern voting rights restrictions. There was a previous case that supported voter ID laws in 2008. There's a contentious 2019 case that allows racially targeted gerrymandering under the guise of partisan gerrymandering. But uh, Shelby County v. Holder, striking down the, the core of the Voting Rights Act is, I think, the sort of genesis of many of the more modern, uh, many of the balder uh, or um, uh, more direct modern attempts to restrict the vote.
1: How do we understand the makeup, the political makeup of state legislatures today? I think we've seen a rise in the amount of states that are controlled by one party uh, and have legislative supermajorities. How how do we understand that?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So one thing to think about is we, we often talk about gerrymandering of congressional districts. Uh, strategically drawing congressional districts to benefit one party over another. We don't actually think about gerrymandering of state boundaries so much, in part because we tend to think of state boundaries as historically fixed. But it's worth noting that the actual drawing of state boundaries, the creation of states, was done in the, the late 19th century, especially with the incorporation of the Great Plains states, in ways that benefited one party intentionally. So if you look at two acts The Enabling Act of 1889 and the Admissions Act of 1890, that created six new states out of the upper Midwest, Uh, and it was a pretty unprecedented measure. It it happened all within 12 months. It was sponsored by the Republican Party in hopes of admitting six Republican-leaning rural Western states, Uh, and it it worked. Uh, Republicans got 12 uh, senators out of the act in just a few months uh, they did unprecedented things, like they split the Dakota Territory into two separate states, North and South Dakota, something that had never been done before. And as a result, uh, you get sort of two things. One is a Senate, which is heavily biased at the federal level towards these rural voters, and increasingly towards, uh, uh, we see Republican dominance in the Senate, because the Republican Party over the last 20 years has really dominated the the rural vote. But also we see uh, many more states which have... Uh, uh, a preponderance of rural voters and of conservative voters such that the Republican Party can really, as it captures the rural vote, run up uh, the uh, score by capturing more and more state legislatures uh, throughout not only the deep South where it's been uh, dominant for uh, some decades, but also uh, in the the great plains and in the uh, rural West.
0: But historically Robinson, before the mid 20th century, was it common to have one party controlling uh, all the elements of state government, as we see today quite often? Uh,
2: Not so much. Uh, You would see occasional wave elections, what we sometimes call critical elections, in which one party does sometimes sweep both chambers of the state legislatures or sweep many of the state legislatures. The Jeffersonian Republicans were the first to do it in um, 1800 uh, and in the subsequent elections after that. Uh, but New Deal Democrats did it in the 1930s. Uh, What we see now is uh, unusual in that we're really seeing a kind of sclerosis or a a settling in, in which uh, the Republican Party's dominance in rural states seems to be pretty durable. Um, There seem to be fewer voters who are persuadable, flipping from one party to another, from one election to another. And so That sort of cyclical realignment of state legislatures with the big national elections, that seems to be happening less. We seem to be settling into more of a sort of stable urban-rural divide in our politics.
0: Right. And it seems to me that there are three kinds of states then, right? So there are the states that are uh, very urbanized. And uh, these are the states like Massachusetts and others that are going to go in the Democratic column pretty consistently. Then you have the states that are very rural, like the Dakotas. And then you have the states that are rural, but becoming urban, like Texas and Georgia, right? And so you have three different kinds of states. um, But they're pretty predictable, right? Uh, That seems to be where we're stuck. Do you see it that way as well?
2: I think that's a that's a fair way of breaking it down. And if you look at modern voter disenfranchisement measures or voting restrictions, they really are in the categories of, of rural states in which you see a strong sort of GOP control of the legislatures, uh, state legislatures passing these bills, not because there's a, a real threat of the Republican Party losing these states, but rather to entrench control of these states. So if you look at say the fourteen. States which have so far in 2021 passed voter restrictions. Some of those states fall into that uh, that category, and here we're sort of looking at the um, again the Great Plains uh, states. Um, so Montana, uh, Idaho, Wyoming have all passed bills like this, even though they're solidly red states or relatively red. But then there are also states like uh, Florida, Arizona, which have passed voter restriction bills, and then Texas, which of course just considered such a bill. And those are states which are essentially trying to preempt uh, the sorts of swings that come with urbanization as well as sort of racial pluralization. Uh, And so they're trying to uh, preempt um, uh, uh, swings in in, uh, voter turnout and increases in first voter turnout that might uh, flip the states uh, to Democrats.
0: And, and so that perfectly, Robinson, brings us to the present. And, and this history is so important because most people, including experts talking about uh, voting questions today, don't know this history. And uh, it, I think it, it, it sheds important light on where we are today. What do you think are the most important uh, historical lessons from this long 200 plus years you've studied for those who care about voting rights today, what is your advice to them for pursuing voting rights uh, expansion, expanding the franchise, protecting access to it uh, in this environment where state legislatures are doing what state legislatures have always done in your eyes, right, which is to actually uh, act in ways that support the interests of the parties in those particular states? What, what are the historical lessons for us?
2: Yeah. So there, there are, I think, two things going on. There are two sorts of uh, voter restriction bills. And one has a lot of precedent, and that is the sort of bill that makes it harder for people to vote. So if we think about some precedents from, say, the Jacksonian era, we would see the Jacksonians, uh, when they took state legislatures, draft statutes or constitutional measures that would knock out uh, voting restrictions that required a person to pay a tax or to own enough property to vote. And if Whigs would then somehow take the state legislature, they would roll back uh, those expansions. They would restrict the vote uh, by trying to uh, limit the vote, say, to uh, their more uh, upper-middle-class constituency. Uh, That fight back and forth was a perennial part of of politics and is sort of what we're seeing now. Uh, Of course, now with much clearer racial overtones, uh, it's worth noting that the Supreme Court clarified that uh, North Carolina had attempted... Um, I'm sorry, the federal courts had noted that um, uh, North Carolina had attempted gerrymandering, uh, racial gerrymandering, quote, with surgical precision. Uh, So this is this is something we've seen for a long time, of course, through the Jim Crow era. This attempt to disenfranchise on the basis of race was a mainstay of Southern politics. Uh, And it will be a perennial problem, Uh, again, without strong federal checks. On the states without uh, a strong federal intervention to make sure states enforce their constitutional guarantees of the right to vote. We'll see some states again, uh, those states which are solidly Republican or are more competitive, engaging in uh, the sorts of voting restrictions we see now. Restrictions that make it harder to vote at the polling booth say those states that require uh, voting ID, voter IDs something the Supreme Court has affirmed since 2008, as well as states uh, making it harder to vote by mail. We do know from 2020 that uh, if you allow people to vote by mail, more people will vote and it's possible that more uh, that higher turnout benefits democrats although that's not uniformly the case. So we see that kind of law happening, voter restrictions, the sorts of laws that uh, make it harder to get access to the ballot. There's a second kind of bill, and we haven't seen too much of it. Uh, this, but it's something that gives me a lot of pause or considerable pause, and that would be uh, measures by the state legislatures to reallocate presidential electors, regardless of who wins the state's popular vote. There were bills proposed in Wisconsin and Georgia along these lines, and. It may be that the federal constitution would actually allow state legislatures to pick their own slates of electors. This was how President Trump, after losing the presidential election, both in the popular vote and the electoral college, attempted to remain in office by urging state legislatures to pick their own slates of electors. And I'm concerned, I think, that in 2020, Uh, This could happen again. Republicans, of course, have won the popular vote only once since 1988. It's unlikely it will happen again in 2020 based on uh, 2024, based on that trend. And should they lose the Electoral College again, if this sort of fringe uh, theory of of, uh, state uh, legislative authority were invoked to reallocate presidential electors, I think that would be a lot more worrying that's a lot less likely, but that would present a much more significant and unprecedented crisis for American democracy.
0: Right, right. And and what are the things that could be done uh, beyond, uh, obviously, passing federal legislation to reverse the trends in the states? Because one of the enlightening parts of your research is that, Uh, states have gone in different directions at different moments, right? You, you make the point that at certain moments, states were ahead of the federal government in expanding the franchise, right? Uh, they, as you said, um, reduced poll taxes before the federal government forced them to reduce poll taxes. So what are the, the lessons again, for those who are concerned about moving toward opening up voting opportunities, what are the lessons for activity beyond the obvious federal legislation? Right. So
2: you're right to point out that when we see a confluence of federal legislation and state constitutional reform, we get the broadest uh, uh, franchise reforms at, at the state and federal level. Uh, and so you can think here about reconstruction in which the federal government required the states hold new constitutional conventions, which protected uh, the right to vote to, to an extent that even the federal constitution didn't do. You saw something similar in the 1960s, sometimes called the Second Reconstruction for that reason. It doesn't look like we're in such an era right now. Uh, If you look at the Senate, again, because the Senate overrepresents rural districts, ones in which the GOP so dramatically outperforms Democrats, it's unlikely Democrats are going to get the wide Senate majorities anytime soon, needed for significant uh, democracy reform. And so we see Joe Manchin, for example, of West Virginia, the pivot vote in the Senate, uh, for Democrats, refusing uh, his support for uh, democracy reform measures like HR1 or HR4, so we're probably going to see federal inaction at least uh, for this Congress and maybe for future ones. And so the question then is, what will the states do? And my guess is that red states are going to remain red. Republicans are going to use their control of uh, non-competitive state legislatures to really entrench that and. Also to try to keep competitive states like Georgia off the board. Democrats won Georgia uh, in the presidential elections and its Senate elections in 2020 and a big surprise. And you can bet that Georgia's Republican state government is not going to allow that to happen again through voter uh, restrictions. The good news for Democrats and those who favor broader uh, franchise uh, uh, measures is that uh, at least at the uh, level of the Electoral College, Democrats still have uh, you know fairly good shots at states like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. These are states in which the governors, uh, state legislators, and uh, state elections officials held the line in 2020 against uh, President Trump's attempt to overturn the vote in those states. And so I think that's where Democrats really need to be sort of focusing their efforts as well as uh, uh those who favor a broad franchise need to focus their efforts. These states which have split governments and uh, have sort of demonstrated that they've got uh, officials who are unwilling to sort of uh, bow to partisan pressure one way or another. Uh, those are the states in which uh, advocates of, of um, franchise expansion, I think, ought to be uh, focusing
0: and they need online. to they need to win in those legislatures you're you're making an argument for uh, not just legal change but for a change in political representation electing new leaders who are more representative of those who who want to see the voting franchise expand
2: right It would be the case that if if we saw, say, Republicans get bicameral control in Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, it would be more likely that Democrats would struggle to have the kind of turnout uh, that they need to win elections. And it would be more likely that we'd see uh, voting restriction, uh, voter uh, measures of voter restriction uh, that uh, those committed to democracy would want to avoid.
0: So, so Robinson, as we look forward, is it is it fair to say that this is a, a fatal flaw in our system? Not a, not a flaw that brings the system down. Our system has functioned, as, as you point out, with remarkable stability for more than two centuries with this flaw. But it does seem to me it's uh, you're not giving us an easy pathway out of it, that the federalist system allows states a lot of room to uh, increase or decrease um the representation of citizens within our society is that how you see it
2: i think that's right we have a very stable low risk low reward system so Because uh, our election law, for example, is diffused, uh, our election regulations are diffused across 50 different states, you get a patchwork system. uh, And this means that you don't have federal authority to sweepingly expand the vote or to overturn state-level votes. Uh, This is why President Trump, uh, after losing the election, had to frantically call election officials in Georgia and Arizona and Michigan and Wisconsin, trying to get them individually to overturn the vote. President Trump did in uh, 2017 attempt to form an election integrity commission, which would have, uh, in its sort of stronger form, given more federal oversight over elections in ways that could have allowed President Trump uh, more authority to sort of uh, push to overturn these uh, state-level laws. Effectively, though, by having this diffused authority uh, to uh, uh, administrate elections, there are many more veto points that one would have to overturn to overturn an entire election. So it's a very slow and inefficient process, one with a lot of uh, sort of uh, very difficult points. Um, One of the outcomes of this, although it allows stability, although it discourages presidents, for example, from uh, swinging elections in their favor, one of the uh, disadvantages of the system is that your right to vote is contingent on your address. Uh, The right to vote seems like it should be a universal thing that you should have uh, a right to vote standardized regardless of where you live. But uh, whether you can vote and how you can vote uh, really depends on where you live in the United States. And that is a disadvantage.
0: And and that brings me to the last question I wanted to ask you, which is where we can bring D.C. in. Is one of the solutions uh, going back to the story you recounted so well of both the late 19th and early 20th century when more states are brought in bringing new states in again? To to rebalance things, D.C., Puerto Rico, others, perhaps. I think
2: that's an important step. If we look at the Senate, we know that it overrepresents rural districts and rural areas, and this has become more of an issue because the Republican Party is again overperforming in in that um, those areas in a way that prior parties haven't. So it's really sort of come to a head. <laughs> now, in the past, the answer to this was to simply add more states, but that's not really as much of an option now. So Democrats look to Puerto Rico, which leans mildly Democratic, and to the District of Columbia, which leans heavily Democratic and would grant two new seats. (laughs) Those seats mean a lot when the Senate is split 50-50. I should also say, you know, teaching in D.C. and being from D.C., I think there are good reasons to allow D.C. statehood besides the fact that it benefits Democrats. There are 712,000 D.C. residents who don't have that fundamental American right to vote, And that really shouldn't matter based on, you know, the balance of the Senate or what, say, Joe Manchin thinks about us. Uh, Hopefully we'll uh, get that right to vote regardless of the partisan calculations.
0: It's a powerful argument, Zachary. What what do you think of this? I mean, you're someone, uh, and I know many of the young people you spend time with are very concerned about voting, very active to try to get people their voting rights. Um, does this does this discussion of the complexities of state governance does it does it give you more energy? Does it discourage you? How does what's your reaction to this?
1: I think in some ways it is discouraging because I think that the way that, that these issues are discussed among young people. And, and the way that they're taught to us in school is too often that that's just the way it is, and and that's the way that it has to be. And so I think too often we 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 shy away from institutional change. And I think the point here is that the only way to to really to really change the face of American government is to change the institutions. And the problem is we're not we're not we're not told that that's possible. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So maybe Robinson, that's what we should close on. What is your advice as an expert who's devoted so much time as a, as a scholar to thinking about these issues? What's the one institutional change that you think might be hard, but still realistic that our listeners who care about expanding the democratic franchise that they should get behind? What would you recommend?
2: That's an excellent question. We are in a moment, which is fairly rare, in which we see one party controlling both houses of Congress as well as the White House. And in our era of very narrow congressional majorities, that's, that's pretty unusual. Uh, and this is a party, the Democratic Party, that is at least rhetorically committed itself to expanding the right to vote. So what that would look like is pressuring holdout senators like Joe Manchin, like Kristen Cinema. Uh, or um, in the case of D.C. statehood, uh, Angus King of um, Maine and Mark Kelly of uh, Arizona, uh, and simply emailing those offices or calling them, uh, urging them to admit D.C. as a state to pass H.R. 1 or H.R. 4. It is odd in that there are really four people necessary to pass these bills, along with filibuster reform, uh, to get significant democracy expansion or reform in the United States. And so while it seems difficult, these people have been, uh, especially Manchin, have been staunch in their opposition to, D- to D.C. statehood, to H.R. 1 and 4. Again, remember, there's only one mind or one or two people uh, whose minds need to be changed in the Senate, and that is something that can actually be done through directly lobbying or calling those offices. And so that's where I would start.
0: I think it's a terrific point, um, and I think we're going to see over the next month uh, quite a lot of that activity and quite a lot of maneuvering within the Senate. You know, does HR one or HR four come forward in the Senate as a single bill? Is it in, in separate pieces? Um, and I think this is a place where public voice can matter. People can uh, try to put pressure. Arguing for whatever they think is appropriate, and uh, and that's that's really important. Uh, Robinson, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. I want to remind uh, viewers that if if you want more of this tour de force of state constitutions and state governance, something we don't study enough even uh, historians like myself we don't study this enough uh his book is hidden laws how state constitutions stabilize american politics and we've learned when robinson says stability he doesn't necessarily mean goodness it can stabilize us in in a low threshold (laughs) uh equilibrium which is i think what you're discussing thank you robinson for joining us today thank you very much and thank you zachary for your poem as always and thank you most of all